Let's take out that handout sheet and let's see if we can't begin. We are in part five of our First Peter series, and we're going to be in First Peter uh, part three. Uh, excuse me, First Peter chapter three. I'm getting all my parts and chapters mixed up. And we're going to be reading uh, there at verse one. And it's a pretty, pretty familiar passage for some of you. You probably heard this if you did some premarital counseling or things like that. But what I want to begin with is some general thoughts on marriage. I'm going to give you a list right up front on what I believe marriage is for. As I examine scripture, I believe that we have it completely wrong. I don't think we understand what marriage is for. I think that many of us still believe that marriage is all about trying to find something to make you happy. I do not believe that is what marriage is primarily for. So let me begin with a list of six things I think marriage is for. Number one, I believe that marriage is a healing agent. A healing agent. What do I mean? We are built with a design flaw in us that we crave community. That we are lonely at the very core of who we are. God made us that way. So that we would have to draw with each other and have unity. One of the main ways that God addresses that loneliness is to provide us with a spouse. It is not the only way. It is sometimes not even the best way because truly that need can be met in community with friends, with family, with church body. It does not have to be marriage, but the Bible is very clear that if a man finds a wife, he finds what is good and has favor from the Lord. So we need to understand it's one way that God heals the loneliness in our lives. Number two, marriage is for change. Marriage is for change. Your spouse is God's primary chisel to shape you into the image of God. That's why you don't like them very much, right? The marble doesn't like the chisel that is carving out large pieces of them and all that stuff's falling away and you're going, Hey, I needed that. The whole iron sharpening iron, the constant hitting on you, the constant forcing you to do certain things, that is to shape you into the image of Jesus Christ. And he will use your spouse first and foremost to get the major work done. It is for change. Number three, marriage is a blessing. Marriage is to be a blessing. Marriage is a gift from God. As indwelt believers, we are representatives of God in our homes. And our homes are where we are supposed to find a certain amount of comfort and safety. So the main question here is, how do we make our homes more of a haven and less hellish? Yeah? For some of us, the idea of after a long day... Where we feel beat up by work, we feel beat up by running errands with the kids, we feel beat up with all the things we need to do. For some of us, a select few, going home is the peaceful place. You can go home, shut the door, your family is there, and it is peaceful. For the majority of us, 
Our homes are the primary place of anxiety. It is not a haven. You don't want to go home. As a matter of fact, you constantly think of reasons why not to go home. Marriage is supposed to be a blessing. It's supposed to be a positive in your life. If it is not, something's wrong. Number four, marriage is a partnership. Marriage is a partnership. It is having someone to invest in over a lifetime, to build things with, and to enjoy life together. To be able to go, hey, look, did you see that? And share that experience. It's supposed to be a partnership. Number five, it is to be a center for ministry. A center for ministry. When Jesus prayed the Lord's Prayer, we all know it. Uh, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. We know all that. It says, uh, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, you cannot control your nation. You may slightly influence it. You cannot control your state. That's obvious. You may influence it. You cannot control your neighborhood. For they are independent people. But you have most influence in your home. And you can make your home, especially if your spouse is on the same page, you can make your home here on earth like it is in heaven. Which means under the rule of God and doing things the way that he desires them to be done. Our marriage should be an idea where you can go out into the world every day, evangelize, share your faith, and come back and touch base about how it went. Hey, honey, what did you do today? Oh, I was out and I got a chance to have coffee with a girlfriend and she was, you know, talking about how her life was tough and I was sharing a little bit about the Lord. We prayed together. You come back, you tell your husband that. He gets a chance to say, you know, at work I was talking with some people. They were having a really hard time. I did the same thing. It's supposed to be this launching pad for fulfilling the Great Commission. Unfortunately, it is rarely so. Number six. Christian marriages are to be representations of God to the world. Representations of God to the world. When God created man, he poured his masculine characteristics into the men. When he created woman, he poured his feminine characteristics into the woman. When those two come together, submitted under Christ, they more fully represent what God looks like. They will represent both his care, compassion, and nurturing side. They will also show his protection and provision side. And the world can then look at a marriage, a Christian marriage, and say, Oh, that's what God looks like. I get it. They'll know more about his nature. They'll know more about what God is like. But let me ask you this. What does the world think that God is like by looking at Christian marriages today? You all know our stats, right? Just as bad as the world, if not worse. They're not seeing God in us. But that's one of the beautiful things of what's occurring when a husband, a man, and a woman come together. You have a well-rounded view of God. In a church, you must have men and women for it to be healthy 
You can't just have all guys in a congregation. There will be no spirit flowing. There will be no ministry of anything relational going on in the same way. You cannot have an all group, a huge church only built upon women. That's not going to fly. There will not be the, the strength of the theology side, of the practical side of saying this must be done. It's different. We need both sides to represent Jesus as his body. Now, that is what marriage is for, at least six things that marriage is for. Unfortunately, I can think off the top of my head of three things that marriages have become for some of us. You don't have to write these down. Number one, a competition. We struggle and battle every day. We walk into the house and our spouse will say something to the degree of, I vacuum the whole house. And your instant response instead of, thank you, is, yeah, what are you saying, I don't do anything? Right? Oh, so you vacuumed the whole house. Do you want to know what I did? I cleaned out the closet and the garage. Oh, really? Well, you know what? I picked up all your clothes because you left all your clothes on the ground. And the competition fires back and forth. And it's this, who can outdo the other person? If I do enough stuff, maybe you'll shut up. Isn't that what you believe? That's right. It's codependent. The idea is that we are constantly battling for this power struggle of who's going to call the shots, who's going to be the primary one that gets their needs met. Marriage is not a competition. They're on your side. You're partners. You're not against each other. Stop acting like you're against each other. The second thing I thought of was that it's become a dumping ground. Our marriages have become a dumping ground. Why? Because if you treated your friends like that, they'd walk away from you. But no, when we come in, we treat our families like as if they're items in our house. We treat our kids poorly because we can. Where are they going to go? We treat our spouses poorly because it's too hard for them to walk away from us. If anybody has ever been through a divorce, you know how difficult that is. You know that going through the state system is a nightmare. And in some ways, we have taken advantage of that with each other. Well, where are you going to go? Are you going to walk away from me? Are you going to leave me? We do all sorts of manipulation to keep them around. And we treat them poorly. We consistently dump on them. We come home and we're frustrated from the world and we start attacking the very people we love. Where in the world did that become okay? You're supposed to love those people. And my challenge to you on that is please treat them as good as you treat me at least. We'll talk about that a little bit more in a moment. Number three, instead of a blessing, some of our marriages have become a curse. It's the number one thing we complain about. You go to a women's group. All you hear about is all how lousy all the husbands are. Right? Man, my husband's this, and he's this, and he's this, and he's this, and it's the number one complaining thing. You go hang out with a bunch of guys, they're all talking about what other women they wish they had, because they don't like the one they have. It's terrible. It's become this huge curse, and we're like, oh, I'm married, as if that's a problem. Wait a second, I thought that was a gift. I thought when you were single, I had to have all these discussions with you about how you constantly wanted to go find somebody. 
Now you have them. Now you don't like them. We've got to get a bigger picture on this whole thing and realize, hold on. It's a gift. It's a blessing. It's a joy. Why has it become the one thing that we always go, oh, woe is me. My spouse this. My spouse that. Here's the thing. The rules for church apply at home. The rules at church apply at home. You go, what kind of rules? Colossians 3.12 says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other, meaning carry things together, and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Ephesians 5.21 Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. These are all mandates and commands for the church, but we don't ever act like that at home. If you would only... Deal with your spouse the way you deal with me, you'd have an amazing marriage. How do I know that? Because the way you take care of me and love on me and act towards me is phenomenal. I know a lot of other pastors feel like their jobs are brutal and miserable and they're getting attacked all the time. I don't feel that way. I have a loaded computer full of encouragement from you. You come up to me, and even when you're angry with me or you're hurt by me, you address me with respect. You address me with kindness. You know I love you. You'll come up and give me hugs. You'll send me cards. You'll send me little encouraging things. If you only treated the person who sweats and bleeds for you like you treat me, a stranger, you'd have a beautiful marriage. Because you really treat me great. And I'm not the one that goes through and lives with you every day. They do. The same rules that apply at church about how you treat people apply at home. Unfortunately, we take all restraint off and we go, well, I'm just going to be myself at home. Maybe you need to be a little less yourself. <laughs> if yourself's not nice, try to change. The fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you is this. Your spouse is not a tool to be used, but a gift to be cherished. Your spouse is not a tool to be used, but a gift to be cherished. Would you turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3? 1 Peter chapter 3 in the Bible is handed to you. It's page 858. 858 1st Peter chapter 3 verse 1 let me just uh, read a couple verses we'll pray for the word and and tear it apart here begins like this wives in the same way be submissive to your husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence 
of your lives. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we're walking into dangerous territory. We're walking into some very sharp battleground. I pray, Lord, that you would turn that battleground into a field of peace. That you would allow our marriages to heal, to come together. And Lord, the blessing would begin to erupt all over this congregation at home. Lord, change us. Make us like you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now let's get some context here. Um, Peter is addressing a very specific issue in the passage that we are about to read. It is not about marriage in general. We're going to make it about marriage in general, but that is not the context. The context is in the early church, Christianity was brand new. So everybody was non-believing. A lot of people were married, but then people started getting saved. And when they got saved, they had to go back home. And now you have one Christian and one non-Christian. That was going to wreak havoc in their homes. Because no, it was not okay. No, it was not cool. Because in the Roman Empire, every year, you had to take a pinch of incense and hail Caesar and call him your Lord. Christians weren't going to do that. They only have one Lord, and it's not Caesar. It was going to invite persecution. It was going to invite trouble. Now all of a sudden there's a huge divide in the house. And Peter knew that was going to be a problem. So he's specifically addressing the ladies. His, sub, his subject is six times more for the women than the men in this passage, which is the polar opposite of Paul. Why? Because in the ancient world, when a man got saved, the whole household was demanded to go along with him. But in the ancient world where women were property, if a woman got saved, no one cared. And they only got irritated. So the address here is primarily to women who get saved, walk into a marriage where their spouse is unsaved, and what do we do about it? Because now we're having everything go wrong. That is the context. Remember, whenever you read the Bible, here's the rule of interpretation. There is one meaning, multiple applications. One meaning. We have to look. What did the author say? Why is he writing it? Don't make scripture say whatever you want it to say. There's one meaning, one intended meaning. But we can apply it in many different areas. And that's what we're going to do today. Now, the main thing we need to do before we walk into this text is to soak in God's counsel on this whole issue. So I need you to sit back for a moment and drink in four specific passages on marriage that Paul the Apostle gives to us. So if you're taking notes, you can jot down where they're found, but I wouldn't try to write too much more than that because I'll be going through these very rapidly. First one, Colossians 3, 18 and 19. Wives, submit to your husbands... As is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, 
Love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church of which we are the members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. 1 Timothy 3 1, 4 through 5, 11 through 12 says this. Here is a trustworthy saying, if anyone, meaning men, sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. Verse 4, he must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. For if anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? Verse 8, deacons likewise are to be men worthy of respect. Verse 11, in the same way, their wives are to be women worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be the husband of but one wife and manage his children and his household well. Final passage, Titus chapter 2, 1 through 8. You must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled and sound in faith in love and in endurance likewise teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine but to teach what is good then they can train the younger women to love their husbands and children to be self-controlled and pure to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. What'd you pick up? Right? You see any patterns? Stuff that kind of keeps going over and over and over and over? All right, let's say we stop the whole message here. Let's say I made no commentary on what those things mean. Are you currently doing what you think they mean? I mean, honestly, you, you're thinking individuals, you're thinking adults, you're looking at this. I know it means something to you. And you may see it slightly different than I do. Are you doing that? If not, why not? The final passage that is major about marriage in the New Testament is the Peter passage that we now are going to look at and tear apart. So I needed you to have that background to understand Peter and Paul were very much on the same page when it comes to this teaching. And if we take this seriously, our marriages will turn around and we will have a blessing at home. Let's look at it. It says wives in the same way, be submissive to your husbands. What do you mean in the same way? In the same way of what? Well, the last passage was about slaves and masters. It means in the same way a slave would go, I'm more intelligent than my boss. I can do better things than my boss. 
I'm faster, I'm stronger, I'm everything else. And God said, I want you to submit under his leadership. In the same manner of willfully choosing to lock in line so that the family might be served in the same way. Wives, be submissive to your husbands. What is this submissive stuff? We talked about it a little bit last week, but let me remind you what it is. It is not doormat. It is not spineless submission. It is not, I don't have a thought of my own. As a matter of fact, that's never submission in a Christian manner. Christianity is never weak. Christianity, submission, and humility is always strength harnessed. So ladies, what does it mean to be submissive to your husbands? This term is, as I mentioned before, a military term. It means that by no choice of your own, God set up the family structure that the men are the senior ranking officers in the home. That means if anything goes wrong on the field, it's their fault. It means their job is to observe their family life and make sure that it's running appropriately, healthy, and smoothly. It does not mean they do everything. It does not mean they make all the decisions. It does not mean any of that. It means, gentlemen, that you will be held accountable. Is what is occurring in your home good and honoring to the Lord? That is your responsibility, gentlemen. Now, if your wife is brilliant in finance, why in the world would you be handling the books? If your wife knows more about child education, why would you dominate the conversation of how the kids are supposed to be raised? That's not good management. What are you talking about? Ladies, the idea of being the overranked one is that in the military, in order to get anything done, we're not having this pure democracy where we're all, you know, we're all arguing about everything. It's the bottom line where Jesus goes, actually, I'm the head of the family. Are we all clear on that? I'm going to give instructions to this guy. I will bust him if they do not occur. Now, ladies, I need you to come in line with what I'm trying to do in your family. Track with me on this one, he says. That's really what it means. No inferiority is suggested at all in this passage for women. Nowhere in the Bible do I see women being marked out as inferior. You go, well, that's not true. If you've got one submitting, then that one's inferior. Really? How does the Trinity work? You all know what I'm talking about. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Are they all equal? Are you all pretty clear on doctrine? Okay, here we go. We believe... Gosh, now I got to remind you. All right. We believe they are all equal. They are all God. There's one God, three persons. That is the belief that is founded this church. Yeah. Yet we have one of them called the father and one of them called the. Why is that? Why is one because one's inferior? The other one's superior? No. As a matter of fact, when Jesus was down here, he only did what the father told him to do. Why? Function and role. They were trying to get something accomplished. And the Trinity put it all together and said, let's go. This is what we will do. And now you have one looking like it's below the other one. In no way does that change their value. They merely lock in 
exactly where it needs to be so that God's will is accomplished. Does that make sense? All right. No inferiority. I don't want to hear any of that business. This is about role. This is about function. Now, wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands so that, now we're back in context, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over. That word is a missionary word. You will evangelize your husband. They may be won over without words. Ladies, if you have an unbelieving spouse, what's the normal way you think you're going to try to convert them? Talk, 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 talk. <laughs> nag, 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 nag. You need to be in church. I can't believe it. Look what the kids are thinking about you. Now I'm the only one taking the kids to church. Now you're leading a poor example and blah, 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 blah. And we have a million things that we want to say to them and about how they're letting down the family and about the fact that they're not taking God seriously. And, and we have all these things to say. The Bible says the opposite. They need to be won over without words. Zip it and focus on a totally different direction. In what direction? They may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. What does that mean? It means when they see that God is so important to you that he dominates, alters you, they're going to want a piece of that. When they see that you take God so seriously, there's no way they can't see the billboard in their room. You're a literal walking billboard of lifestyle evangelism going in and out of their household. You have more influence than you'll ever know. But what we don't want them to do is constantly resist you just because you're talking. And they think it's a power struggle. Pull out the power struggle and go, hey, this is between you and God. In my world, he means everything to me. In my world, I have peace. I have joy. I have this wonderful family. You, I don't know. That's between you and God. That they may be won over. Paul says a very similar thing. 1 Corinthians 7, 12. To the rest I say this, I, not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. If a woman has a husband who's not a believer and he's willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife. And the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let him do so. A believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances, for God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband, or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Nevertheless, each one should retain the place in life that the Lord assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. What did Paul just say? When one of the the spouses became a believer, it would wreck the house. And some of the Christians would say, well, now this other person's causing me to sin. I don't want God to be mad at me because I'm married to now this non-believer, so I need to divorce him. Remember, this is all brand new. So they would go, you're violating my God. I need to run away from you. And Paul stepped in and he goes, what are you talking about? No. No, we're not here to cause division. No. You stay in that household. You minister to that spouse. You don't run away. Now, 
If you now get saved and they hate God so much that they can't stand your presence and they find you vile and they walk on you, don't run after them and say, you have to stay or God's going to be mad at me. I can't be divorced. I can't be divorced. God will hate me. He said, whoa, 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 whoa. Where'd you get that? No, if they can't handle it and they need to walk, you let them walk. You're not going to manipulate them to stay because you are going to use your Christianity as a tool. What well, moves on? And it starts talking, ladies, to a much deeper issue going on. Now, in general, men have a tendency to struggle with pornography, lust, sexual stuff, just stereotypically. And that's been coming up in the church a lot, meaning in teachings throughout the last five years. And normally that's the one that gets talked about a lot. What I find is that is equaled with women on their side with body image issues. As dominant as pornography is for men, it's as equally dominant for women to have body image issues. And how, ladies, that you react to how you dress, to how you handle yourself, to what you see in the mirror, to what you think of other women. These things have become twisted. And so this is addressed as well. Peter says this, Your beauty, ladies, should not come from outward adornment, such as braided hair and the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of your inner self. Meaning, in Greek it says, the hidden person of the heart. The unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past, who put their hope in God, used to make themselves beautiful. They were submissive to their own husbands. All right. Here's what it did not say. It did not say, ladies, don't worry about your appearance. Don't do anything about your appearance. It didn't say that. Right? As a matter of fact, you go through story after story after story in the Bible, and it says, and this guy selected so-and-so. We're going to read a story about Sarah. The one thing that's mentioned about Sarah is that she's beautiful. Okay, clearly in the Bible, there's references. We all know in life that there are references to being good stewards of your body. Looking your best. I get that. That is still assumed. But ladies, what it cannot do is steal your soul. You cannot allow the dominating culture to harden your heart and rip your guts out. If every time it's this constant examination of what is everyone else wearing, what am I wearing, what are they thinking of me, going through the line, can't even go through the line in the grocery store without trying to observe everything that's going on fashion-wise in the magazine rack, every day, morning and night, obsessing about our weight, obsessing about everything in our mirror. If it has ripped out your soul, something's wrong. Because it has become your God. If you think more about your appearance than about God, you switch places. And I understand that our culture is beating the living daylights out of you. 
But you know what? It's happening to us guys too. You cannot allow it to shape your heart. What this was talking about and referring to is that in the Roman Empire, the women were not allowed to do anything. They were considered property, so all they had was their looks. So they would try to create their own social strata layer by dressing a certain way to try to show their wealth and show how amazing they were. The more wealthy, the more beauty stuff they had. And so what they would do is they'd put their hair up. The reference there is they would put their hair up and they'd take all their jewelry and weave it into their hair. So they'd have these massive hairstyles gleaming with gold wrapped all the way around and braided in so that when they were walking, the bling was so huge that all the other women would go, dang, right? It's like wearing an enormous ring. They would do that because that was their social strata. They didn't have access to other areas of society. They poured it all into their looks and they became obsessed. It's very similar to today. Very obsessed. So ladies, here's my heart to you. I know it is the one thing that hurts you deep down. I'm not going to jump on you. I'm not going to judge you. I'm not going to attack you. But please do not let it become your God. You must wrest control back and not let your passion drive you. Paul said in 1 Timothy 2.9, I also want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds, appropriate for women who profess to worship God. You know, it's interesting because I think that the answer is found in Colossians 3.1. Since then, ladies, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. The verse continues on. It says, They were submissive to their own husbands like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her master. That's Lord, boss. That's how she addressed her husband. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Ladies, is there any fear in following a man? Huge. I'm a guy and I'm afraid to follow a guy. This word for fear is terror. And it's only used once in all the New Testament here. What are you afraid of, ladies? I think it's pretty obvious. You're afraid your man's going to be a moron and lead you to ruin. If you fall in line with this guy, he's going to screw up all the finances. He's going to ruin the household, drive you into poverty. You and the kids are going to be on the street. And he's going to completely dominate you, take advantage of this role, and act like a king. I get it. Not only that, but he's going to make stupid decisions that put you in jeopardy. Wow, I wish there was somebody that could relate to this. Oh, that's right, Sarah. Anybody remember the story of Sarah and Abraham? Excellent. Ladies, if you think your man's bad, try Abraham, the father of the Jews. Why? Well, because on two separate incidents, both in Genesis, by the way, Genesis, let's see, 12, Genesis 20. First, 
Abram, before he became Abraham, he's walking around and he goes into Egypt. His wife is so stunningly hot that he is worried for his life. He's going to walk into Egypt. The Pharaoh is going to look at her and say, I want that one. Get the guy out of the way. Kill the husband. I'll take the wife. So he comes up with a brilliant plan. The brilliant plan is throw his wife under the bus. What does he do? He lies. He goes in. They come up. They say, wow, your wife is awfully attractive. I think our Pharaoh would like that. He says, go ahead. She's my sister and lets her go. The Pharaoh takes her into his household. She's in absolute jeopardy. She goes along with this stupid plan out of submission to her husband. All of a sudden, in, he's in Pharaoh's household. She's in Pharaoh's household. Meanwhile, Pharaoh gives Abraham all this money and all this wealth while he's safe on the outside. He's making cash off his wife and putting her in danger and telling her to lie for him. Well, what happens? It says the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household. And Pharaoh went back to him and said, what do you think you're doing? Well, I mean, I, I thought you were going to kill me, so I, I lied. Great, now I have disease. You could have just told me she was your wife. Yeah, well, I was worried about that. Oh, I see. Well, here you go. There's your wife back. Get out of here. That went awesome. When she's 75, it happens again. He goes down into the desert region in a city named Gerar. The king is so smitten by his wife. Understand, how amazing do you have to be that at 75 you roll into town and everybody locks on you? And the king is like, I will kill for that. Right? If I can only have her as my bride, I will take out whoever I need to. So Sarah was pretty stunning. What does Abram say? She's my sister. Yeah, go ahead. Take her. Twice. She ends up in his household. Once again, king falls asleep, has a dream. God says, I love this phrase. This is awesome. God says, you are as good as dead. You mess with a man's wife. He wakes up. I didn't mean it. What are you talking about? I had no idea. He told me it was his sister. He runs back to Abraham and goes, are you trying to kill me? What is your problem? This is Abraham's response. Well, there's surely no fear of God in this place. And I figured they'd kill me because of my wife. Besides, she really is my sister, the daughter of my father, not my mother. You. <laughs> I said to her, check this one out, ladies. I said to her, this is how you can show your love to me. Everywhere we go, say of me, he's my brother. All right. I know your man's stupid. He's not that stupid. Do you understand what personal jeopardy he put his wife in? Who rescued her every time? God. God is in charge of your man. Do your warfare in prayer. Say, Heavenly Father, the man you have given me does not lead me well. Minister to him. 
whatever that means. Because you're his daughter. And gentlemen, God's not going to let you treat his daughters just any way you want. Let's finish this up. Husbands, in the same way, because of God as an ultimate servant, be considerate as you live with your wives. That word considerate means understand her needs. Consider her needs. Spiritual, emotional, physical. Know what she's going through. See it. React to it. Be considerate as you live with your wives. Treat them with respect as the weaker partner. Most commentaries believe that has to do with physical weakness as compared to anything else. And treat them with respect as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life. They're believers. And they are co-equal with you in the kingdom of God. So that nothing will hinder your prayers. It's a bunch of different ways to take that. Let me cut to the chase. Gentlemen, as dating and being married to your king's daughter, do not expect blessing and favor from him if you're being a jerk. He will shut you down. Let me close with two lists. The first list is what great wives do. I realize that we're running out of time, so I'm going to go through this quickly. There are seven things that I have found that great wives do. So, ladies, take notes. Number one. Number one, submit to their husbands. Great wives submit to their husbands. That means they don't try to always run the show. They don't cut his legs out from under him. They submit to their husband and the plans that God has given him. Number two, great wives are more beautiful on the inside than on the outside. More beautiful on the inside than the outside. If you're as stunning as Sarah, that's going to be a tough challenge. Because your insides better be beautiful. Number three, great wives respect their husbands in a manner that the husband can feel. If he does not feel respected, you get no credit. Number four, great wives don't tear down their husbands emotionally by nagging, fighting, constantly bickering. The wisest man in the world wrote Proverbs, and he wrote three of them about it's better to live in the corner of the roof than to live in an awesome house with a nagging wife. He literally said, I'd rather die. You have a power, ladies. Number five. Great wives work hard for their homes. They are not lazy, not selfish, and they give their all to make their household thrive. Number six, great wives don't bring trouble or embarrass their families. Ladies, we do not need all the gentlemen to be constantly embarrassed because you are the main proponent of the gossip mill. Where all the guys are like, sorry, dude, I know, she, I know, I know. Don't be that lady. Number seven, great wives intercede for their spouse and children in prayer. Gentlemen, take notes. I got nine for you. <laughs> Ladies got seven, guys got nine. Number one, great husbands. And this is so funny because this is when all the wives start writing. <laughs> Ladies, stop it. 
Number one, great husbands are gentle, respectful, and considerate to their wives. They're not harsh at any time. Meaning a lot of guys go, well, I just struggle with anger. You know what? I blow up. Okay, stop. Take it out on someone your own size. Talk with a buddy. You know what? Start a fight club. Do something else. But do not harm your wife. Do not come home and dump on her. Do not take out your aggression from work on her. That is unacceptable. Number two, great husbands love their wives sacrificially to death in a manner their wives can feel. If she does not feel loved, you get no credit. Oh, I love her. I love her. I've always loved her. Well, she doesn't recognize that, so it doesn't count. Love her sacrificially. She's more important than you in your mind. Number three, great husbands provide for their wives, meaning their needs and safety, and do not harm them. Don't ever lay a hand on your wife. Domestic abuse happens in the church, and I don't ever want to hear about it here. Number four, great husbands seek to be a man that their wife values. And you want her going to all her girlfriends and going, my husband is a stud. He is awesome. He does this, he does that, he's amazing, constantly bragging about you. Number five, great husbands lead their homes spiritually and practically, which means you make sure that your home is healthy, however that works out. Number six, great husbands pursue their wives even in hard times. You chase after your wife. You make her know that she is being chased after. Even when you're fighting and arguing, you let her know that you're still there. Number seven, great husbands encourage and praise their wives to fill up their hearts. Encourage and praise. Get verbal, gentlemen. That's not what we do well. That's why I'm half woman. But that's not the point. <laughs> encourage and praise. Encourage and praise. Verbally build up your wives. Number eight. Great husbands bring happiness to their wives. She should be blessed to be married to you. The Bible even commands it. That for the first year of marriage, a man can even stay home from war just to bring happiness to the wife that he married. A command in ancient Israel. Unheard of. Number nine, finally, great husbands intercede and pray for their wives. Now, as we close, we have a short video to issue you out a challenge. We'll watch that right after this prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Lord, with all this information swirling around our heads, we ask that you would help us to sift it, And put it into practice. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.